Wow. I so appreciate all of the work that Chris and our worship team put together as they, they organize our worship for us. But today, just, I just want to say wow. What, what an incredible reminder for us and for the church about, about what we need to celebrate and be reminded of as we gather together. Just glancing down the list of those songs, Glorious Day, A Mighty Fortress, your labor is not in vain. Just so you know, I couldn't even sing that song. It was too powerful to me. I just had to listen to it. It is well with my soul. I, this is why we gather for worship, to be reminded of the glorious good news of the gospel and all that Jesus is and has done. Because we live in a world that's not perfect or fair. It seems broken beyond repair in so many ways at so many times. But what an incredible, even as Mark prayed, what an incredible blessing of God that we can gather together like this. We can read scripture together like we've read. We can sing songs like we've sung. And now we can look at God's word together and continue to be encouraged by who God is and all he has done. So thank you. Thank you for being a part of worship today. And by the way, if you're planning my funeral, your labor is not in vain. I'd like somewhere in the, in the, in the music list. And some of you might be already planning that, but if you are, just so you know, if everybody gets together and says, what shall we do for music? I would like that one as, uh, as a part of it. I will say, too, about the uh, Operation Christmas Child, I know it seems like toothbrush would be a bad idea, right? Because there's, you know, you can imagine the faces of little children opening up a box and receiving a toothbrush. But I got to tell you, I had, a, I had a chance last month to hear the testimony of a Ukrainian boy. He's a young man now uh, who grew up so poor because his father was a pastor in the Ukraine. He and his six brothers and sisters had to share a toothbrush. And yeah, I know you're thinking, sharing a toothbrush, but that was such a humbling experience for him to have to share a toothbrush. And he said all of their toys they had to make, they made uh, yo-yos out of bottle caps, and that's what they played with. And they used their shoes to be cars. So they would, as they would play, they would you know, move their shoes around like they were cars, and they would use bottle cap yo-yos. And he said the day that he opened that shoebox, every dream in his life came true with a yo-yo with a car and with a toothbrush he didn't have to share with the rest of his siblings. So thank you for your continual uh, participation in that. And it was just a, a great reminder of, of how, those gifts are, uh, how, how those gifts are received. So uh, thank you for, uh, for participating in that way. He also said he had no idea what to do with dental floss. Um, that they thought it was candy, and they would ball it up and kind of chew on it. Like, personally, I don't know what to do with dental floss either, but that's, <laughs> that's a conversation between me and my dentist. But anyway, are we ready? Let's work on our James passage together as we begin. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives 
and humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts, for it has the power to save your souls. But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. If you listen to the word, but don't obey, it is like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you don't for says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. See the value of doing this together, right? Because I can always depend on you to help carry me along as we get close to the end. But thank you. I hope, I hope as we've had these last several weeks together through the book of James, it's just been an opportunity for this word to take, to take plant in our, in our hearts, for it to, it to change our thinking and our minds. It becomes the, the default soundtrack, should we say, of the, of the words that we're using. But this morning, I want us to look at this last section of James chapter 5. If you would turn with me there, we're going to beginning at look at verse 7, and we're going to look all the way through the end in verse 20. We have said that we, we know that apart from Scripture, apart from God's Word, we have no hope of not fooling ourselves. That you and I can be so, uh, so misled by our own hearts and our own actions and our own, our own feelings. Feelings make horrible guides. And we know that. And we say that's why we want to look to God's Word. We want to sit under the authority of God's Word to help us understand how to think and how to feel and how to respond to the world around us. That especially as believers, the only hope that we have against fooling ourselves is living under the authority of God's Word. So with that in mind, let's look at how James wraps up this letter beginning in verse 7. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmer who patiently waits for the rain in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for a valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters. You will be judged. For look, there is a judge standing at the door. For examples of patience in suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. But most of all, my brothers and sisters, never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else. Just say simple yes or no so that you will not sin and be condemned. Are any of you suffering hardships? you should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call on the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was a human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. 
Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. Let's pray together. God, your word is true. It is glorious and it is right. And God, we as your servants, those who trust you and have put our faith in Christ and in Christ alone, God, we come to you this morning and we pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would illuminate us, that we would be able to hear and to understand and apply your word correctly. God, our deepest desire is to sit under its authority. Help us. Help us through the Holy Spirit to understand and apply the word that you have given us today. In your heavenly name, amen. I thought about entitling this Fooling Ourselves About the Normal Christian Life. We've been talking about fooling ourselves and all the ways that we can fool ourselves, and I thought maybe we could entitle this Fooling Ourselves About the Normal Christian Life, but then I realized I had stolen a title from Watchman Nee. And I didn't want to get into any copyright issues with Watchman Nee, and, but I didn't know really how to describe how I feel James is, is ending this passage. Is he, is he talking about the ordinary life? I know sometimes we think of ordinary, we think, well, that doesn't sound very exciting. Maybe that's not a, a good way to s- describe it. Maybe he's describing the, the typical Christian life. And as we think about that, well, you know, what do we really mean by typical But what we have here at the end of this letter is we've just transitioned from living in a fallen and broken world and putting our faith in the security of maybe our plans or in wealthy people or in the the false way that wealthy oppressors were using their money to take advantage of people. how, how How do we respond to a world that's just not perfect or fair and not going the way that we think it should? Well, James starts to give instructions now about how to live. How, how to live the Christian life in both the now and the not yet. How do, how do we live and understand living in the world that's where there are people who are wealthy oppressors? There are people who aren't putting their trust in Christ. How is it that we as believers live in this kind of world? How do we, how do we live out our Christian life until Christ returns? And it seems like in, in this particular passage, he's addressing some very important things for us because if we're honest, if I'm honest, it seems like when we think about the normal and the ordinary and the typical Christian life, sometimes I think we have a really confused picture of what that's supposed to look like. I think for a lot of people, they think that if I become a Christian, that I'm going to have a life that doesn't have any suffering, no sickness, and certainly no sin. I really think that. I think that if I follow Christ, if I put my faith and trust in him, and maybe some in a very well-meaning conversation as someone was sharing their faith with me, maybe I misheard that. That if I put my faith in Christ and in Christ alone, then I'm, I'm not going to ha- ever have difficulty. Everything's going to go my way. God's going to always provide the, the, the things that I want. I had to specify the things that I want in those. I'm not ever going to deal with difficulty. I'm certainly never going to have health problems. I mean, those are for people who don't love the Lord, right? I mean, you know, nobody has, well, yeah, I can't even say that out loud, can I? And especially the idea of sinning. I have sat with so many people 
who thought that if they put their faith in Christ, and, and rightly so, that if they put their faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit would come and live inside them, rightly so, but they thought they would never ever have sin again. They thought they would never ever deal with temptation again. So when they experience sin and temptation, after they've put their faith in Christ, they felt like somebody pulled the rug out from under them. They felt like, well, maybe that, that gospel thing didn't work for me because I'm still struggling with my sin and temptation. I thought once I put my faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit lived inside of me. I was going to be obedient to his word. And I was never, ever going to struggle again with my sin. You know, people toss around words today like deconstructing their faith. And, and we've said for years, we've seen folks who have been a part of churches, maybe their whole lives walk away. And sometimes I feel like part of it is because they have not really ever understood the normal Christian life. The typical, ordinary Christian life. I think for better or for worse, maybe they bought into a picture of following Christ that didn't look like it does in the here and now. And yet I feel like that's what James is helping us with. He's, again, dealing with a scattered group of people. He's dealing with people who have some things under their control and some things out of their control. And he's constantly trying to give them the wisdom to navigate living in this world. And in this, as he concludes this, I feel like he's giving us four marks of the normal Christian life. Four indicators, four things to focus on in this concluding section to help us see if our lives are marked by these, then we are living the normal Christian life. We're living the ordinary Christian life, the typical. We're living the Christian life as it is laid out for us if our lives are marked by these four things. First and foremost, I want you to see, as we all absolutely love Scripture when it tells us this, is patience. We always love the passages on patience. As a matter of fact, we know that James even began this whole letter with a call to patience. But here he is again in response to dealing with rich oppressors who were misusing their wealth and putting all their confidence in that. And he begins verse 7 and says, Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. He wants them to be patient. He wants them to, to be like farmers who wait patiently for the rains. He wants them to be patient and to take courage for the coming of the Lord is near. And knowing that patience causes them to grumble against one another when they don't have that patience. And he even in verse 10 starts to give them some, some examples of, of patience and suffering, looking at the prophets and, and of Job from the scriptures couple things I want us to notice about this patience is first and foremost, patience has a promise. Patience has a direction here. It's not just be patient and wait. It's be patient and wait for the Lord's return. There is a sense of hope with this call to be patient. It's not just called to be wait. It's a call to wait with intentionality. This is entirely different, right? To have an intentionality and a hope that we're waiting for. If you have a vacation on your calendar coming up, you have an amazing sense of patient endurance. You do. If it's on the calendar and you've already booked it and you've already looked forward to it, you know that regardless of what comes into your life tomorrow morning, in two weeks, you're heading out on a cruise ship. 
In two weeks, you're heading off to the mountains. You're going to go, you're going to do all those things because you have a sense of hopeful direction. You're not just enduring the drudgery of the day anymore. Now the day has a direction you're looking for, you're longing for, your hope is in something. You're not just called to be. Try this with young people. Try this with little kids sometimes. If you're asking them to wait, if you're asking them to be patient, if you're asking them to sit in a chair for more than 27 seconds, you'll find how helpful it is to give them a picture of what they are waiting for, to give them a sense of hope of what it is that they're waiting for. And as much as James is calling them to patience here, he's linking that patience in verses 7 through 9 to the anticipated hope of the Lord's return. He's giving them something to hope in. He's giving them something to hope for. He's not just talking about being hopeless. He's giving them something to focus on that even in the most difficult situations with the most difficult people in the most difficult times, we can have hope as we look and long for the Lord's return. Then, like I said, he gives us some examples. He looks at Job and the prophets. And if you've read Job and the prophets, those are not typically the people you like to identify with in Scripture. When you look at Job and the prophets, you see people who are incredibly faithful in the face of very difficult circumstances. None of us look at Job and the prophets and say, that's who I want to be in the Bible. <laughs> that's the sort of character and experience. I, I would love to devote my life proclaiming God's word to a bunch of people who don't want to hear it. Uh, who reject me, who never believe me, who treat me like a false prophet and drag me off into exile with everybody else. Amen? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a tough job description to sell. And we look at Job and we say, hey, good news. Your story's going to be in the Bible and generations will read about you until the end of time. You're going to be the person that loses absolutely everything, experiences so much pain and suffering in your life, but it's going to be awesome because your wife's going to tell you you should curse God and die, curse God and die, and you're still going to hang on through that, even though you get really bad advice from your friends. Doesn't sound like the kind of biography most of us are liking to write in these scenarios. But this is the example of the patience he's giving them. And why would he? Why, why, why is he giving them this picture of enduring suffering like the Job and the prophets? But you know, there's there's something. There's something inside of us that when we meet people who have experienced tremendous suffering and difficulty, we honor them. They have more respect in our eyes. That, that, that picture here of, of the honor that comes to those, the respect that we give those who have endured suffering. Look at verse 11. We give honor to those who endure suffering. I've often said it's, it's one thing to listen to somebody's story and it seemed like everything just fell into place for them. It's one thing to listen to the, the story of the superstar athlete who you know, went through every game of their entire playing career and never lost a game and, and, and never had to deal with difficulty and never had to deal with defeat. It seems like the stories that we like are those where people struggled where there was difficulty, where they were overlooked, where they were ignored. There are so many interesting uh, stories this year in the NFL of players who've had amazing games who were out of the league or almost out of the league their entire lives. Uh, there was the one uh, story that I, I, I enjoyed 
uh, about a guy who in 13 years had been on 16 teams. And none of those times he had ever even got to dress for a game on Sunday. Uh, that he was always on a practice squad. He was always, always cut. Uh, there, you know, I read through his, his entire career history. It was like he joined this team and was cut two weeks later. He joined this team and then was traded another two weeks later and thought here he is spending his entire life never able to, to accomplish what he was hoping to accomplish. And then on, then on one day in one event, he had a wonderful day and he got, he, he got to receive the joy from that wonderful day. The hope that he still had to continue to endure. But those are the stories. We love those stories. We love the stories of those who have, who have persevered, the stories of those who have been strengthened in their endurance. We, we love those kind of stories. And that's the story that we're getting here with Job and the prophets. It's the story here that we're getting thinking about how the farmers' hopeful anticipation for the rain, the patience that is involved there. But it also, if you remember, this is one of the primary themes that James has talked to the people about. This goes right back to chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, where he talks to them about having patient endurance and being strengthened. He talks to them about how they could, should consider it a great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow, so let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you'll be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Look at verse 8 of chapter 5 here. You too must be patient and take courage. Some translations have the idea of standing firm or strengthening your hearts. It's the endurance that is built up in us through the patient endurance. But again, it's not without direction. It has the hope of the return of Christ built into it. So patience is just not patience for the sake of suffering. It's patience for the purpose of strengthening our hearts and developing courage as we wait in active hope for the return of Christ. So the first thing our lives should be marked by as believers is patience. Begin, patience with direction, patience with courage. Secondly, though, I want you to see that our lives are to be marked by prayer. There's a transition here that's very unusual in, in verse 12. We go from patience to prayer, and it's hard to figure out, this, is, is chapter 12 about taking, or verse 12 about taking an oath, is that, is that a third topic that he's introducing? Or, or for, my, for my outline, is it number five that he's introducing? Or is that an outflow of patience? Or is it an intro into prayer? Either way, it seems like the next big segment that he's talking about here is one about prayer. In verse 13, are any of you suffering hardships? These are rhetorical questions, aren't they? These are assuming positive answers. They're assuming yes. I can't imagine. He says, anybody dealing with sufferings? You're like, nope, not me. Not anybody I know. No situation that I'm aware of. No, there is a positive assumption here that you should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? calling on the elders of the church to come and pray over you. That when we start talking about the role of prayer in the life of the Christian, we have said before, I believe God's goal and desire for your life has the word surrender and dependence in it. It's surrendering who you are to Him and completely and totally depending on Him for everything. That dependence and surrender is what God wants out of you. 
He wants that response to you. And there probably is nothing that demonstrates a dependent heart and attitude like prayer. If we don't pray, it's because we believe we've got it all under control. If, if we don't pray, it's because we feel like we don't need any sort of divine help or guidance and, and we think we've got things covered or we don't think God could do anything about it anyway. It's a horrible picture of God when we don't pray. But what we want in our lives, what God is working to bring about in us, whether it's through hardships, sickness, or happiness, is that we would develop a dependent, regular mindset of prayer. There's an all-the-time aspect of prayer that's being described here in verses 13 through 15 for us. Not only when we're having difficulty, not only when we're sick, but also when we're happy. Do we have an attitude of gratitude, or are we quick to forget? Are we quick to forget our absolute surrender and total dependence on God? Sometimes in our honest moments, we recognize if we did a, a prayer audit, it seems like oftentimes the only times we pray is when we come to the end of ourselves. Well, the, the reality is we've come to the end of ourselves a whole lot sooner than we realize. The reality is our desperate need to depend on God is much greater than we ever could have imagined. And the call to prayer here, the call to have the mark of prayer in our lives is one where we're developing this regular dependent mindset. There's even a picture here of not only prayer individually, but also group prayer. It reminds me of, of, of 2 Corinthians 1.11, where, where Paul calls the church and he says, you are helping us by praying for us. Then many people will give thanks because God has graciously answered so many prayers for our safety that yes, we are called to pray individually, but also called to pray together and to invite one another into praying with us. There's even a picture here of the elder role. We know praying for the church family is one of the primary roles the elders have. I got to tell you, one of the, the greatest joys of our elder leader retreat this past October was the time we spent just going through the church directory, praying for every single family one by one by one and if you're not in the directory we'd love to get you in the directory because <laughs> the directory provides a wonderful opportunity for us to live lives of prayer for one another so there's a picture of individual prayer and group prayer and even this picture of, of calling on the elders to pray and there's this passage about calling on the elders and anointing with oil and we got to think through that sometimes because we're thinking okay what is he what is what does he mean by this is he talking about the oil having some sort of medicinal value well no not really it's not that the oil has it's not like it's a vicks vapor rub right i mean because that has certain medicinal powers and maybe i just dated myself with vicks vapor rub but anyway that has certain medicinal powers but now we're not talking about kind of a vicks vapor rub and we're not we're not even talking about a, a sacramental understanding. And sacramental, we mean, is there, is there an extra bestowing of grace just because the elders show up with a little bit of oil? And I don't know if it'd be 30 weight or 10 weight or 5 weight or whatever, whatever oil they happen to bring. Hopefully it's not cooking oil. Hopefully it's something else. But, but with the elders show up with oil, we're not saying there's some extra grace that makes this prayer more different or significant or more gracious. But we are saying there's something symbolic, there's something memorable about having the elders come and pray with oil to say that this is a, a symbol of God's power and his presence with his people. 
We look throughout the Old Testament and New Testament about times oil was used in anointing and in the name of the Lord. And it's so important for us to put this in the right context to say it's not the elders and the oil that brings about healing. It is in the name of the Lord. It is God and God alone who brings about healing. But there's something here about those in our church family who have one of the primary responsibility of lifting up our church family in prayer, the elders, and something symbolic about them having a, a physical, tangible reminder of God's power and presence and His anointing uh, throughout Scripture that brings that together as well too. It's a, it's a focus, it's an intensity, it's a reminder. Again, it's not about the elders and it's not about the oil. It's about who God is and calling on Him in complete and total dependence. That's what prayer does for us. It exposes our, our desperate and, and daily needs. Uh, thirdly, I want you to see that beginning in, in verse 16, again, if you thought a call to patience was going to be difficult, verse 16 tells us to confess our sins to each other. You go first, right? I mean, that's how we feel when we read a passage like this. You're like, not a chance, not me. I'm not going to do that. But the call here is for us to confess our sins to one another, that we may pray for one another, we may be healed, that we would, continuing this, this pattern of, of prayer that's being listed, and, and a part of that is the confession of sin. You know what this should tell us? We have sin. I know that's a shock to you. I know that's not something that we typically ever think about, but we need to stop being surprised by our sin in the church. Because you know what? You're not surprised by your sin, so you shouldn't be surprised by mine. We would all be much better off if we understood that we are all broken and in daily need of God's grace. That there's no super spiritual person in this room who has not sinned this week or even this morning. That the reality is you and I are called to come to God daily and continually in confession for our sins. And like everything in the life of the church, there is so much value in doing that together. I know that seems our. Here's how it, it, it never works because we're surprised by one another's sin and we never want to admit that we sin. The reality is we do. Now, you don't have to be salacious and detailed in your sin, but I think we do have to remind one another that we are all desperate and daily in need of God's grace. And sometimes when I hear that you're struggling with your sin, it does a couple things for me. First of all, it reminds me, yeah, I'm struggling with my sin as well too. Because you know what might happen is if I don't hear you struggling with your sin, I think, well, I'm not supposed to be struggling with sin. This sh I shouldn't ever, I should never share. I, 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 there must be something broken in my life with Christ. Or maybe I have minimized my sin to the point where when I hear that you're struggling with the same thing I've minimized, it makes me go, wait, whoa, now wait a minute. They are broken and convicted over the same things that I've dismissed in my own life. Wow. I, I thought my anger and my temper was just who I am. But they're broken over that. They, they know that's not who God called them to be. Maybe I need to go and seek confession and repentance as well too. See, there's value in recognizing that as long as you and I are here on earth, we know as followers of Christ, there is some incredible truth in the gospel. 
The incredible truth of the gospel is when you put your faith in Christ, you have been removed from the punishment of your sin. Jesus Christ has taken that for you on the cross. Amen? You are no longer guilty of that. It is not because you're righteous, it's because he's righteous. And he has declared you innocent based on his righteousness alone, not by yours. That's good news. And because of that, we've, we've been removed from the penalty of our sin. And here's the other thing that's the hardest one for me, I've got to tell you. If I ever get to a point where I doubt the gospel, and I, if I ever get to a point where I doubt the gospel, it's in the transforming power in my own life. See, the gospel tells us that I've been removed from sin's power, that I'm no longer a slave to sin. I don't have to sin anymore. I am now a slave of righteousness. I've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But then sometimes I look at myself in the mirror and go, how? 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 I've been delivered from the penalty and the power of that sin. So it's even more painful when I feel myself drawn back into it. And that's why I have to acknowledge the regular routine of repenting of sin and confessing sin so I don't minimize it, so I don't dismiss it in my life or in your life and don't, don't think it's less than something that needs to be brought to God because the glorious thing is that there will be a day that we long for where we will be completely even removed from the presence of sin. Talk about the things that we're patiently hoping for in the return of the Lord. He has promised a day when there will be no sin. There will be no sickness. There will be no suffering. That's what we long for. But why we're still here, even though we've been removed from its penalty and its power, we still fight against it. And the only time we lose, by the way, is when we stop fighting. Our sin is a defeated enemy. And the only time we lose is when we stop fighting and we quit or we dismiss it. But the picture here of this con con having an environment of continual confessing to say, yep, I'm struggling right now. I need God's help and his deliverance over these temptations, over these difficulties, over these concerns, over these issues. This regular routine of, of repenting is a necessary mark of the ordinary Christian life. Because if we're not, we're just fooling ourselves and fooling everybody else. The reality is our lives as believers should be marked by repenting. Now here, here we go. Just so you realize, James didn't stop there. If there is going to be an environment where we're struggling with sin and we're confessing, look at the beautiful way he wraps up this section. This call to restoring, this call to, to restoration, this call that as, as the body of Christ, as the family, that we, would, that we would be restoring one another. If someone, in verse 19, wanders away from the truth and is brought back, not just let go, but brought back, you can be sure whoever brings a sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. We know the least loving thing we can do is to let someone go and ignore it. 
We know even as Paul told the Galatian church in 6.1, when a brother and sister is caught in sin, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. We've even got a, we've even got a passage for how this restoration should take place and how this should work in the lives of our church. But if we, if we never admit that we need repentance, we will never recognize how desperately we need restoration. But as he wraps up this letter, calling us to one another to care for one another, even in the face of difficulty, in the face of trials and struggles, this call to restore one another, to go and get one another, to go and say, I don't think this is going the way you think it's going to go. To say, I'm, I'm concerned about some things in your life with gentleness, not with a sense of condemnation, but with a sense, I love you too much to continue to see these things grow in your life. If we don't have that, we really, we really don't have church. If we don't have repenting, we really don't have church. If we don't have prayer, we absolutely don't have church. And if we're not longing for the Lord's return, what are we even doing? All these things are pictures and marks of the normal Christian life, things that you and I are, are called to. Again, thinking about 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery troubles you are going through, as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. Would you do this for me at the bottom of your outline? Would you write in as big a words as will fit, until the Lord comes. Until the Lord comes. That we are, we are called to patience in suffering until the Lord comes. We're called to prayer and total dependence until the Lord comes when our faith becomes sight. We're called to repenting until the Lord comes. And then we receive the, the celebration of the fullness of our salvation without sin at all. And this restoring is until the Lord comes to make all things new. To make things the way he created them. To make things the way he designed them. To make them for his glory and his glory alone. See, these are the things that you and I are experiencing in the here and now. These are the marks of our lives in the here and now, but they will not be forever. We have a glorious hope and a glorious promise, and we long for the coming of the Lord. Even our, our church's statement of faith says, we believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy and our, as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. And I would make the case to you that what that looks like is lives of patient hope, lives of prayer, lives of repenting, and lives of restoring. My, my, my heart's desire for us is we would lean into a passage like this. That we wouldn't, we wouldn't avoid this, but we would lean into this and say this is what God is calling us to in the here and now while we're waiting anxiously for his return. That these would be the marks and characteristics of our life. Even, 
even as we think about sharing communion together in just a moment. We know 1 Corinthians, when Paul talked to the church, he called them to do this until he comes. That it's this continual reminder and celebration of the hope that we have. Struggling in our patience, the the dependence that we have, thinking about our need in prayer, the, the forgiveness that we receive through repentance, and the restoration that lies before us when that day that Christ returns. That every time we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we're proclaiming the gospel. We're proclaiming who Christ is. We're reminding ourselves and a watching world when we eat this bread and we drink this cup of the hope that we have for the normal, ordinary, typical Christian life. A life marked by dependence and patience and repenting and restoring. Would you pray with me as we prepare our hearts to share share this wonderful picture of the gospel together? God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder throughout all of scripture and through this passage of the glorious God that you are. Thank you. Thank you for the gift of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Thank you for the deliverance from our sin that his death and resurrection brought about for all those who believe and put their trust in him. And God, even as we share together a a visible and tangible reminder of that good news of what Christ has done, even as we share together a bread representing his body given for us and, and a cup that represents the new covenant in his blood, may we be reminded that even this that we share together today has an expiration date. Until you come. And God, we pray that you will help us to be patient. We, help, we, we pray that you'll help us to be dependent, that we'll be honest in our sin, and we will seek the restoration of ourselves and our brothers and sisters in Christ until you come. And God, may we long for your return. In your heavenly name, amen. So I'm going to invite you in just a moment to come and to to share together with us. And how we'll do this this morning is I'll I'll invite you to come and to take a, a bread and to take a cup and then return to your seats and then we will together uh, share it together. So as, as, they, uh, as we prepare, again, I just want to invite you, that especially, again, this is, a, this is a visible and tangible reminder of the gospel. For those of you who put your faith and trust in Christ, this is a continual reminder of that. So we would, we would say, hey, if, if you're unsure about how that fits into your life and whether or not you've ever really trusted Christ, then we would just say, hold back. Because this is, a, this is a, an opportunity to, to celebrate what Christ has done. And, and, and we want you to know this is important to us. This is something that we believe we're going to do until Christ returns. But oh, there'll be a day when we have a feast that doesn't look like this. <laughs> there'll be a day when we have a feast in the presence of God that doesn't look like little wafers and little cups of juice. <laughs> but for today, this reminds us of the good news of the gospel. So I would invite you, those who've put your faith and trust in Christ, to come.